0: Hey guys, welcome back to Better From the Ground Up. And today we have guest Paul Bodenstein on with us again, and we are gonna talk about the top five things um, for corn production that we think you should consider for this season.
1: Every morning when you get up, you run up the flag that says Balanced Nutrition, and you salute it every morning. That's what I'm here to do today.
0: That's my strategy. There's no magic program for everybody. It's about identifying what's most limiting and fixing it. So it's amazing what the crop can do when your nutrition is squared away and everything's good and adequate and balanced. hey guys cody Gowans here welcome back to better from the ground up today we have mr paul bodenstein from ashland virginia with us and we are going to talk about the top five practices for corn production today um, so those of you uh most everybody's probably familiar with paul by now but paul has an independent advising business and it's called ag systems out of virginia he's been doing it a long time um, and we've been working with him for a few years we've had phenomenal results working with paul taking his advice, using his nutrient management plan, tissue sampling, nutrient balancing. Um, we've had great results. Um, Paul is a wealth of information, so we like to get him on here as much as we can to pick his brain um, because you guys will get a big benefit from listening to Paul. So, uh, Paul, what, you were you hit your 50-year mark recently, right? No, no,
1: no. that uh, 2025. 2020
0: what? Next year, next year. Next year's fifty years. It'll be fifty years. That's correct. Awesome. So, um, Paul's been doing this for longer than I've been alive. Um, so I rely rely on Paul quite a bit. Um, okay. So today's topic again: top five practices for corn production. Um, you could debate this if you want. Um, you know, you could say, "Oh, that's not really the top five most important things." Um, this is more important. There's a lot of stuff. We can all agree there's a lot of stuff that's important in producing any crop, right? Um, We just wanted to pick five very important things um, that that we feel like need to be discussed. Um, So one of our previous episodes, we talked about corn prices are going down. um, Commodities are not great. Everybody's got a budget. Um, so in the spirit of that conversation, we feel like, all right, let's pick some, let's pick some really important things out. And some of these are free, right? Your hybrid selection, um, you're paying for hybrids. So, um, emergence, um, some of these things aren't going to cost you anything, um, and they're going to benefit your crop and benefit your yield. So we'll jump right into it. Paul, um, we, we titled this the top five, Um, practices for corn production and first on the list um, they're in no particular order they're all very important but first on the list i give a disclaimer when i speak i say look if you want to raise high corn yields um if you're looking to to grow high yields you got to have good emergence right um and one thing that goes hand in hand with that that we'll talk about right after this disclaimer this this initial conversation is proper emergence depth But uniform emergence of corn is very, very, very important. Um, And we have learned from Randy Dowdy and David Hula, working with their Total Acre Group and working with those guys, um, we've learned how to achieve that. They go into really great detail with planter setup um, and how to achieve this really uniform emergence on corn. And a lot of guys, a lot of farmers, plug their ears when they hear this. They they really don't want to talk about corn emergence. It's not exciting, Um, you know. But it's very important. So we've learned, you know, from Randy and David more than anybody how to how to achieve that. Um, I don't know if anybody knows more than they do about that topic. So um, I tell guys, look basically all I can tell you is slow the planter down. (laughs) The slower you plant, the less it bounces, Um, you know, the more consistent seed depth you're going to get. But other than that, I can't go into too much detail. If you really want to know all the details about how to get perfect emergence, you'd have to join Total Acre. So disclaimer, high corn yields require very uniform emergence. Um, The next thing um, that Paul brought to our attention last, was it last year? I think last year um we we were looking at, at um looking at tissue samples um digging digging up corn looking at roots um and Paul noticed that we had a lot of corn that had emerged shallow so we get into this conversation now that you need proper emergence depth we talk a lot about planting depth but Paul was like well that okay that's not really what matters what matters is what how deep was it when it emerged what was your emergence depth um, so Paul, real quick, and we don't have to go super in depth on this, but tell us why, what should our emergence depth be and why it, why does it matter? What's it do to our corn if we have too deep or too shallow, uh, of emergence depth? Um, can you, can you explain that? Sure. Good morning, Cody. Um,
1: the, the biggest thing is we want it to emerge two inches. Uh, i've heard david Huel say saying meetings at least two inches <laughs> which what do you what does that mean <laughs> yeah um but we're trying to get two inches as our target we know that uh this is a general uh, uh, generalization but a root corn root a corn plant wants to develop five unique root systems some people say it's more than that but let's just all agree it's going to be five main ones and if we're too shallow we won't get those root systems developed and since all these nutrients are going up through the roots all the microbial activity depends on these bacteria and fungi in the soil colonizing roots we need a vigorous healthy root system with all the roots we can get especially in parts of the country that lean towards dry spells and sandy soils light souls mm-hmm. um Planning too deep just throws some of the timing off because, if it, again, if it's all equal, if it all comes up the same, that's okay. But that's harder to do when it gets too deep because of temperature variation. The, the deeper you get in the surface, the more variation you get on how much heat reaches down there, actually. Okay. So the goal is to get uniform emergence at the proper depth. Those are two different components. The uniform emergence will help overcome some of the uh, depth issues, but we need both of them. It's two two different components, Mm -hmm. Cody. Um, So uniform emergence and then uniform emergence from the right depth. And then the other thing that we still run into is how growers measure where it germinated yep there's one standard recognized this is how you measure it and, and everybody's got but it seems like everybody has their own different idea of how to measure that
0: yep top of the seed right top, top of, the of the seed, seed to the bottom of the plant to the bottom of, the, of the bottom of the plant is, then you
1: add three quarters of an inch
0: Okay. And the plant, when you say the bottom of the plant, you mean the nodal roots, wherever the nodal right. roots are coming yeah, out. Yeah. And you'll have those by V2, V3 for sure. Oh,
1: yeah. You'll have them earlier than that. You can see the little nubbins almost as soon as the plant comes up.
0: Yep. If you see anything on top
1: of the ground, they're, they're already there.
0: So from the top of the seed to the bottom of those nodal roots and add three quarters of an inch. Correct. Right. And that, that's something we recommend everybody check. Um, go out V1, V2. Um, dig some plants up, dig a dozen plants, and check what your average, what your average is. Um, because Correct. if you're if you're shallow, you know if you're measuring, if you're measuring three quarters of an inch from the top of that seed to the bottom of those nodal roots, and you add another three quarter inch, that's inch and a half. Um, we know we're not maximizing things if it's that shallow. Um, so, what will we miss out on? One of the things that we talked about most is. Uh, I think phosphorus uptake was one of the biggest ones. Um, there's more chemical, more, more herbicides for those seedlings to metabolize, the shallower they are. Um, the soil dries out more. If it does get dry, um, the, the roots will be in a drier environment. So um, there's a lot of different stuff um, that goes into that. But check your emergence depth. Um, work on your, your corn emergence being as uniform as possible at the right depth. Um, that That's kind of – I call it a disclaimer. Um, <laughs> call it what you want, but I, I – you know, there's – the reason I call it a disclaimer is if guys get poor emergence and their emergence depth is way off and they want to go foliar this and foliar that and wide drop this and side dress that, you can't overcome that poor emergence a- and messed up emergence depth. You can't foliar or side dress or wide drop your way out of it with products Nutrients, biologicals, PGRs, whatever, you can't, in our opinion, in my opinion anyway, you can't overcome that. That That's part of the foundational practices for, for high corn yields. Um, second on the list, and this is where Paul comes into play with us um, in a big way, is balanced plant nutrition. Um, so Paul has drilled in our heads that it, it's, it's balanced nutrition. It's balanced nutrition. It's balanced nutrition. So looking at nutrient levels is, is one thing, but it's the balance. It's the ratios, the levels, the balance that, that, that has a big impact. So, Paul, you spent your entire career studying and working on that, correct?
1: Pretty much. I mean, my background is most of of physiology.
0: It. That's basically
1: what – I run that flag up and salute it every day. I think yep. the uh, the thing about this balanced plant nutrition is your strategy most growers understand amounts of plant food uh-huh they understand it they're business guys they understand numbers amounts i'm not sh- my observation is regardless of where i've gone is i'm not sure growers have a full appreciation for availability because its right. availability is just as big a component of amounts yep and that's where the balance comes in
0: sure so when when we say balanced plant nutrition we are using we're primarily using the tissue samples to identify
1: yeah our issues are but to your as you've already mentioned there's you know there's weaknesses with that but yes answer your question yes that's what we're doing excuse me and you have to be alert when something's out of whack, you mentioned that if you plant, if your corn emerges too shallow, it's going to impact your phosphorus level. Your 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 phosphorus level is going to test low. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you get a tissue sample, and you have low phosphorus, most growers will say, "Well, we've got to more. We gotta add out, more phosphorus out, right?" Go, no, it had nothing to do with your phosphorus levels in the soil. It had to do with them, your emergence depth. And so, <clears throat> breaking a tissue sample down as to what's treatable versus not treatable. What's the symptom and what's the cause. That's where some of the sophistication comes into play.
0: Right. Okay, good. Um, so balanced plant nutrition, um, to us, it's been a big deal. I mean, we've been, we've been working on that and working on improving that the past few years. And, um, I believe wholeheartedly in that now, um, from what we've seen. So, can't stress that enough, uh, balanced nutrition is, is a big deal. Um, one thing that Paul ha- has mentioned in meetings with us before is balanced plant nutrition provides the best herbicides, fungicides, insecticides. Right. Uh, could you touch on that just real quick? Um, how those, those products are impacted by plant nutrition?
1: Yeah. Uh, I think the big miss in a lot of places. Is the uh, the disease people and the insect people in particular don't realize that a lot of the efficacy of the materials that you're using or even the need for it has got to do with plant nutrition. Mm -hmm. I don't know why they struggle with that concept, but they do. Um, And I don't get it because if the plants nutritionally balanced it is the ability to fight off diseases, tar spot on corn is a good example. Uh, We used to read when the literature where people, uh, researchers are not getting a uniform. Well, it controls it somewhat. It controls it to a degree. Sometimes we get control. Sometimes we don't. It's probably not the pathogen that's the main problem. It's a nutritional issue that's allowing that disease to even survive or grow. So we have other ones like that. Uh, We see it in cotton we see it in soybeans. as i get into with a new grower they say well and i look at their budget originally and they say well we're going to spray these soybeans three or four or five times with insecticides to keep the bugs off that's an indication of poor microbial health to me you know bugs attacking your plants is something the plant's screaming that something's not right right and the the insects sense that Mm -hmm. so We can go after incident, after incident, after incident, where nutrition is the fundamental cause of excessive insect pressure and disease pressure. And all weeds, obviously growing in the same soil as the crops, we've known for a long time that if certain weeds have low iron levels, they're very difficult to kill. Right. We know that um, we've, we know that first of all, if we get a healthier plant, we're getting more shade, more growth and shading is still our number one herbicide, but just how do we kill these weeds? We can kill them better. uh, If they're nutritionally balanced, believe it or not. And so uh, we're looking into some of this stuff as some of these weeds are growing that we're not controlling with uh, herbicides on the market today. We're trying to understand what their nutritional makeup is. And is this, in fact, an imbalance of nutrients in the plant that makes them difficult to kill, that they're not able to absorb the chemical enough to kill it. And it may not be anything,
0: but we think it is. Okay. Okay. Have you tissue sampled any weeds? Yeah. Oh, a lot. (laughs) Uh, I don't have, you
1: know, all these tissue samples we use, we start out with what's in the textbook. We change them as we Mm -hmm. get. As we get years of experience and testing them and taking them to yield, blah, 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 we say, well, that's not right. This should this number should be this number. Mm-hmm. We don't have the luxury of that kind of database for weeds, but we've looked at enough tissue samples and I can see some of these levels. And I, when I do my ratios and balance, because each tissue sample that we do, we're running 177 different analytics mm-hmm. on it. And we can start seeing some trends and yeah. Again, like the crops that we're dealing with now, the iron levels are atrocious. I mean, they're just, whoa. And mm-hmm. we've known forever that Gramoxone, in the literature, it says that Gramoxone won't kill weeds that are low well iron in it. We know that. Is that the same thing we're seeing in some of these other ones? I don't know, but I promise you no weed scientist is looking into it. Right. You know, there's there's no um, research funds involved with that. Yep. So. Anyway, so there's a disconnect between the pathologist, the entomologist, and the weed scientists, between what they're doing and what nutrition is. In my opinion,
0: right? Okay, perfect. So, um, all right. So, uniform emergence, proper emergence depth, balanced plant nutrition. Um, like we said, the the your crop inputs are going to work better when you get balanced nutrition. Um, is the short story. Um, Third on the list uh, that we think is critical is feed the soil and the plant microbes. Um, so we pull we pull the we pull these conversations apart, but we probably you really shouldn't. You should think of them as a very connected, interdependent thing. Um, when we talk about balanced plant nutrition or plant nutrition in general, and we talk about biology, biologicals, microbials, whatever you want to call them. Um, Microbials, biologicals, biological food sources, plant growth promoters—you um, got all this different stuff. But the biology, the the organisms in the soil and on the plant surface, are very, very, very connected um, with plant nutrition. Um, so, as all almost all your nutrient uptake, a microbe is playing a role in in some way. Sometimes it plays. Um, less of a role and sometimes it plays more of a role but all these bacteria and fungi and protozoa um, algae you know all this different stuff that's in your soils um, and most of that's on your leaf surface too by the way um, it has a lot to do with how nutrients get into the plant Um, so we we pull them apart for conversation's sake but in my opinion fertility nutrient availability and biology are insanely connected um paul would you agree with that certainly i think
1: again what's most limiting in the crops that we're raising well for corn for example i'm convinced that our biggest limiting factor on corn is a biotic stress okay so biotic stress is Disease, insects, and weeds—any kind of stress is caused by a living organism. Abiotic uh, stress is anything that's caused by too wet, too dry, too cold, too hot, uh, salt, and nutritional imbalances, all these other things. And that's where we're seeing. That's, in my opinion, that's why the rise of these bi- biologicals—if you want to call it that—because uh-huh. now especially i know you know i don't know what's causing the global warming it's clearly getting warmer i mean we just came through our warmest december ever here in virginia and so is it, is it man-made or not i'm not qualified to address that but it's getting warmer and we're getting colder and we're getting these different stresses we're getting uh drier and it's these biologicals the rise of the biologicals has been in my opinion because of these abiotic stresses i think wheat the biggest limiting factor of wheat is this march freeze we're trying desperately and we're trying different ways to use these biological components to enable the plants to withstand a one two or three degree difference in temperatures Mm -hmm. when they don't freeze out the main tillers if that Uh makes sense yeah so these microbes to your point yes for certain Nutrients, absolutely, but also for what and under that is just abiotic stress.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How can these organisms help the, our plants overcome abiotic stress? Same thing is true with soybeans. This flower and pot abortion that we've talk, addressed in soybeans—that's an abiotic stress. So the rise of the, the, the microbials into the market, into, into the psyche of the farmers, is coming from their ability to relieve abiotic
0: stress. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we, we're, we're tackling this. Season long, right? Like you know, Paul, you you gave uh, my favorite analogy that I've ever heard you use, or the favorite thing I've ever heard you say, probably is we need two nutrition programs, we need one for the plants, one for the crops, and one for the microbes, right? Correct. So so you also have said um, to to people that have cattle, how often do you feed your cows? Well, it's every day, right? You don't just feed them once a month or once every three months. That that wouldn't work. And these microbes, they have to eat every day too. Um, and normally what they're living off of uh, is the root exudates um, or even the leaf exudates for the ones that are on the leaves. But mainly it's the root exudates, which is – There's a lot of stuff in root exudates. Um, I just want to make a side note of that. If you start looking up, you can Google um, what exactly is in root exudates. There's sugars, there's amino acids, there's organic acids, there's all kinds of compounds that these plants can manufacture and pump out the roots to feed and stimulate certain microorganisms. Um, But the plants are doing that. Well, guess what? Guess what is going to be most efficient at that? A, A plant with good nutrition. A plant with good, balanced nutrition is going to be best at at producing those root exudates and feeding those microbes, which is going to lead to more nutrition, more abiotic stress resistance, um, all those kind of things. That's why I say they're so intertwined. Um, but anyway, you got to feed them regularly. And, and so obviously we're not going to go put biologicals out every day. Um, that ain't going to happen but we do feel like it's important to at least at key growth stages um, to to help the plant feed those microbes so we're start we're doing preplant we're running in furrow we're doing with post herbicide and we're doing with our fungicides so you know generally we're getting if we do preplant in furrow post with herbicide and even if it's just once with herbicide that's four times a year that we're helping the plant feed those microbes um and that has so much to do with, like Paul was saying, with mitigating and helping with the abiotic stress. It has so much to do with nutrient uptake and availability um, that we put this on the list as one of the top five things because I feel like if you cut these products out, I, I think that's a detriment. Um, Paul, what's your opinion on on how do, how do you rank these products the biologicals on the what level of importance do you do you give to these
1: well it all depends on what you're trying to do if you're trying to if you're trying to get into a, a um, if you're part of an operation that's moving forward uh-huh as opposed to an operation is very happy where they are we're just going to go through it this is where we want to be yep It probably isn't going to be important to them. But if you're part of an operation that wants to move forward, Uh get more efficient, try to work through the situation, these are strategically, these are going to be required to uh, solve the problems that I believe are major limiting factors, if not the limiting factor. What's interesting, I tell the story. My first experience with all this was in 1994 with blazer on soybeans. We put a humic acid material in with the blazer in strips. And I don't know if you remember blazer, but that was, it was wonderful for killing weeds and soybeans. But your best advice to a farmer when you apply it is that don't look at this field for three weeks because it looked like, well, it looked like cobra today or something. You just said it When
0: you said it was great at killing weeds in soybeans, I thought you said weeds and soybeans. <laughs> oh, in
1: soybeans. Sorry.
0: So it'll kind of anyway, look like it killed your beans.
1: It looked like, oh, absolutely. You would just go, "This, how the hell do these beans come out of this whole thing? But when we, we went back in three weeks, I was just like, I'm not going to look at this. The beans that had gotten the re, the uh, blazer plus the humic acid had some tinging on the leaves, but they never stopped growing. They were mm-hmm. full two tri, true, five, true trifoliates ahead. And even in a major drought, they ended up yielding about 33% better. And I was just amazed. I said, How could it do this? And that's where I came aware of what humic acid would do to help mitigate plant stress as those plants tried to metabolize the herbicide. Mm-hmm. So even today, even with genetically modified plants that have that were bred to metabolize these chemicals, they still, it's still a very stressful process. Mm-hmm. It really is. And so anything we can do and how they metabolize these uh, chemicals and grow on past them is with the micro—the microbes are doing all the heavy lifting there. Mm-hmm. So the more you understand about how this interaction between microbes and plants works, the more you have a feel for why they're so important into the process. So. For growers, where I am, Cody, where I see cold temperatures on wheat, abiotic stress weather on corn, and iron uptake and iron efficiency and iron utilization on soybeans as our most limiting factors, how do I solve them without microbes? Do you have any answers, I'm listening, but I don't think you have any.
0: Of how to solve those problems without microbes?
1: Yes, that's why I just asked you.
0: Right? No, I don't you can think solve so. Solve
1: those problems without microbes. I'm all ears. Right. Now I'm sitting there going, "Okay, I don't, I cannot," because right. that's the only place we've been making progress on solving these issues. I can see it. I can watch it happen. Yeah. So it all Perfect. goes back, but but you're not going to see that unless you, as a producer, can identify what's most limiting in my corn crop. What's most limiting on my wheat crop? What's most limiting on my soybean crop? And how do I get past that?
0: Right. Do,
1: do you agree most farmers don't think like that?
0: Yeah, no, they definitely don't. No. The question we get all the time, especially from people that are newer to the biological stuff, um, and, and it ain't even just biologicals. It's, it's almost anything. If they're considering a product, the question is always, well, what kind of yield bump should I expect out of that? And I'm like, ugh, I get it. I understand why you're asking that. That's how I thought before I met Paul. <laughs> you know what? How many how many bushels is this worth? Um, but it, it's just backwards. It's backwards way of looking at it. So yeah, I agree. Most farmers are not thinking. Well, no. The qu- what's so most spending?
1: When somebody comes off to the farm, talking about biologicals, and they say, "Well, you get a yield bump." The question you should ask as a producer, in my opinion, is that how. Tell me right. how this is going to increase my yield. So I can be looking for that. Tell right. me how, tell me exactly how, and if the guy can't tell you exactly how you should be suspicious. I think anyway. Yep. All right. You better move on. You're right I agree. Out of time.
0: I agree. Okay. So, all right. Feed the soil and plant microbes. Next is hybrid selection. So generally speaking, the newer hybrids are better. Um, I, I put pay attention to the new, but proven hybrids for your geography. Um, so I'm not saying a new hybrid that nobody's ever had before is what you should be planting, but generally speaking, the newer hybrids um, are going to be the best and and have the best genetics, the best traits, the you know the highest potential, um, the better ability to withstand stresses. Um, so so very much on on the same page with most people of newer hybrids are probably where we need to be looking. Um, there's some older hybrids that are just tried and true that are just so good that are you know four or five years old but and that's fine but generally speaking the newer hybrids cost more because they're better um, select them for your geography obviously you got to know do you have to worry about frost by black layer or do you not Um, But also um, select hybrids with uh, resistance to the diseases and pests that you struggle with. One thing that I want to mention on here uh, is pay attention to the herbicide ratings and select your herbicide program based on weed control and the hybrid ratings. Um, We had a couple – we've seen some things in corn a a couple times, and – I sent pictures to Paul, hey, what's going on here? any idea And uh, sometimes he asks me, well what hybrid did they use? you know what what did they spray on it? what was their herbicide program And we had a conversation and I don't I hadn't really paid much attention to it and some people may do a good job of this but others I think there's a lot of people not not paying much attention at all. Um, the herbicide ratings on hybrids, you've told me before Paul, that's a very real thing right? Like you really yeah. have to pay attention to that, um, and what what is what's common? What chemistries are are usually the ones that can be problematic? Like, is it the ureas? Is it the what? What is it? You know, do you just look at the tech sheet on the hybrid and and yeah. see? You just look at the tech sheet on the hybrid, mm-hmm. and you pay attention to. The different chemistries how they're rated how that hybrid's rated to handle those chemistries, sure. right right okay so yeah. phonyureas so,
1: would be one uh benzoics or the uh hppds then there's the um plant growth promoters are both great regulators. T four d dicamba uh-huh so i think those are the three big ones but they all have a list most of them have a list they're, and If you push the seed guys, they'll say, "Well, it's really not that bad." Well, I mean, they didn't put that on there to, be, to have something to talk about. Um, I think you'll find <laughs> yeah. as these hybrids um, are becoming more productive, I guess is the right word, um, where they have a weak their their weaknesses get more. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the word? Pronounced maybe is yep. the word. Yep. You know where they have—they all have an Achilles heel. They all have an area that they're not strong on. And you, or we—if they didn't, they'd have one hybrid everybody would be playing because it would be the top one all over the world, right? Right. So there's all these hybrids because they all have weaknesses. I—I I know the cologne companies like to talk about their strengths, and rightfully so, they should be very proud of what they've done. Their companies have done, their breeders have done, and I understand that. I'm always interested in the weaknesses. Right. Tell me what I have to avoid to make this a disaster right that's probably bad that's probably sounds like negative thinking i'm not trying to be negative no that's that's that's
0: I, what i, just, I was I, that's what i was I trying to convey know, though like i i can look like a,
1: i can look silly but i don't want to look stupid
0: <laughs> tell me <laughs> what
1: to stay away tell me what to stay away from yeah
0: right you know? right so that you know when i mentioned select the hybrids with resistance to the diseases and pests you struggle with uh, because yeah, if you've got a disease or a, or an insect or you know whatever it might be, if you've got something prevalent in your geography, you better make sure that your herbicide, your herbicide, your hybrid is rated highly against that. Um, so yeah, I like I like the way you put that. Um, show me what the t- let's talk about the weaknesses. What do I need to avoid? Um, yeah, show me the holes. Show me the holes. What can yeah. I do with
1: this? What? How do I make this hybrid look very ordinary? right so i can avoid doing it so i can avoid that
0: right perfect okay so hybrid selection all right last on the list um and this is something that it just is so common um so i wanted to put it on here so we could talk about it um have a plan for for mitigating stress during summer drought periods um it's very common you know we just talked about in a previous episode um the corn yields the national corn yields and everybody in june was like drought 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 oh my gosh my corn's dying i don't want to fungicide my corn because it's 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 going to die there's no point in me putting another 20 bucks out there um you know and then it's like oh you know we we got a lot of guys i had my best farm average or i had multiple field averages that were higher than ever Um, the national average was was high right so um i want to talk about this just because it, like I said, it's just so common. We keep seeing these Junes with no rain um, and Julys with little rain. Um, so one thing that that, uh, that Paul has taught us is um, Veltima on corn, um, trivapro is good too, but the new fungicides are are better, right? So let me start with that. The new fungicides, the Veltimas, the Pros, the new ones are much better, and they are doing a lot more for those plants than the old fungicides. Um, one of the things that that we talk about is uh, the kernel weight. So you've got rows around, re- kernels per row, ears per acre, and kernel weight. And the major driver of kernel weight is heat through grain fill. Um, so the hotter it is in the daytime and at nighttime, the shorter grain fill is going to be, the less kernel weight we're going to have, the less yield we're going to have. Um, and one of the amazing things about like Trivapro was um, they have showed over and over that it can lower the canopy temperature. Um, what was it? Eight, nine, ten degrees even? Well, that um, was Veltima. That was Veltima. Veltima was the only chemical Veltima. I saw that
1: data. Yeah, it was the only chemical that I saw that data being presented by. That was BASF. Eight to
0: 11 degrees. Eight to 11 degrees.
1: And, and canopy temperature.
0: Which is huge, right? Like, that's enormous. Oh, yeah. That's huge. Um, so um, So, in a drought, you know, where guys, are, well, I don't want a fungicide because I don't even see any disease out here. And it's like, well, uh, regardless of whether, whether or not there's disease pressure, if we are looking – if we're staring down the barrel of a really hot grain fill period, especially if it's hot in the day and at night um, – I'm going to be pushing back and, like, no, you – now is when you really want to use those those new fungicides like Veltima, um, or I should just say Veltima, period. Um, the other thing is um, – Most of our customers, not everybody that listens to this, but but most of our customers are foliar-feeding micronutrients. You know, we're we're tissue sampling at V7, V8, um, and we're seeing, oh, okay, manganese is low. Or, or like, let's say manganese is most limiting. Um, All right, we're going to go put, you know, a couple pounds of manganese out. Um, Well, if it's dry, if it's really dry and there's drought stress, two things. Number one... You're not getting – that tissue sample is not telling us the true story, right? Like we can't really say what's most limiting in the middle of a drought with a tissue sample, right? That's not when we want to make that decision. We want to pull those tissue samples when the crops are not stressing, when they're, when they're pretty happy. Um, so first of all, is the tissue sample even accurate if you pulled it when, when you're in the middle of drought stress? Second of all, even if it was accurate, we don't think it's a good idea – to, to go spray micronutrients on your leaves if they are in the middle of drought stress. Why is that? Because all fertilizers are what? They're salts. All fertilizers have a positive and a negative combined. They compete for water. They're all salts. And we don't understand or, or believe that it's a good idea to go spray salt water on drought stressed leaves. Okay? So we are i'm all for addressing nutrient deficiencies and some of that sometimes that has to be foliar um the irons the manganese um sometimes that's foliar and we just want to throw this out there for everybody we are not going to be putting micronutrients on in the middle of drought stress we are going to stick with something like fungicide and fortress for instance fortress is purely stress mitigator um that I won't go down the list of what's in Fortress, but it's a biological product and it's all about stress mitigation. There's no salt index um, in, in a product like Fortress. So we're going to stick with fungicide and Fortress, Veltima and Fortress, and drought stress, and we're going to pull back on micronutrient applications. Um, I feel like I've seen enough, and just over the last week, we've got a bunch of trial data back um i feel pretty confident that this is the right move um to pull back the reins on the micronutrient applications in the middle of drought stress um so paul that i gave my two cents on having a plan for mitigating um stress in a drought period though so, give me give me your opinion real quick um
1: well no i i, I listen to you the thing the fungicide has got to go on before you get into a drought stress area. If you start seeing drought, if your corn's rolling, right, it's too late for getting kind of response to a fungicide. In my opinion, we encourage growers. The thing about the Bell team that got our attention when they first came out with it was the fact that they said you can go as early as V10 and get season-long control. We were skeptical. I was skeptical as hell. In fact, I. I shall. <laughs> anyway, kind. Of, anyway, they were they were right, and I was wrong. It wasn't the first time. Anyway, so it's got to go on. So we're recommending a ten application, which is much much earlier than most people are thinking. Fungicide. Yep. It has to be inside the plant, working before that stress hits for it to be effective. By accident, we found in the Delta that putting potassium acetate with that extended the longevity of the Veltema and made it even more efficacious. Mm -hmm. So I asked Cody to put together a foliar with potassium acetate, as we talk about not using foliars, a potassium acetate material. I think the response from the potassium acetate is stimulating the plant microbes with the acetate. I don't know the Mm -hmm. potassium is making that much difference, but the acetate certainly is. And something like Fortress, um, which are some of the components of Fortress, are in the catapult. Yep. To help the plant mitigate stress, and then the question for y'all seems to be this late season rust that comes in, and so far we've been able to keep our arms around that. But,
0: but it's catapult, just it's just that when guys harvest and they see rust, they're wondering, oh, did that come in early enough to take away yield? I, Could you know, have. And it's kind of hard. Yeah. So did it? The, ones or did it talked, not?
1: the problem with that, Cody, is that the ones we've talked to is, did you put the catapult in there? No, well, we didn't do that. We just did. Okay. Well, the the yeah. program is Valtima and the fortress. Okay. I, if you cut corners, then I, I can't. Right. I can't help you. You know what I mean? That That's, that's the recommendation. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. So, sure. Anyway, sure. the fortress has got that. We know that we. You know, some guys are putting foliar iron in. Because we know that iron is helping reduce tar spot pressure, uh-huh. I think that the uh, plant growth promoter, your Zyflow technology molecule in that, yep, cat, and that catapult is helping pull the iron up out of the soil to get the iron levels higher. Just things we need more data on to see if that's what's really happening, but that's what we think's happening. Uh huh. It's, it's giving us a. It's is allowing that plant to stay a little bit cooler. You know, our average grain fill period is, should be around 40 to 45 days, 42, 43. When heat comes in there, that can be reduced as little as 22 or 23 days. You get light, chaffy ears, no weight to, you know, we've been able to drop the average number of kernels per bushel from 80, 85,000 down to 65 to 70,000, 72,000. A lot of guys below 70,000 kernels to make a bushel. That's real dollars coming in to the farm. But the timing is important. Agriculture is about water and timing. It's all about water and timing. That's all it's about is water and timing. So to say, well, I'm going to wait until I do this or wait till that. The timing is V10. It's with the Catapult and the Veltima. That's the program. That's where we've been most successful. Can you use Stratego? Could you use Trivapro? I don't know. We don't have data on that, right? I'm not, I'm not a research company. I'm a results. Let's get the yields up company, mm-hmm. um, and that's you know that's how we're measuring it. So that's I just want to make sure they hold hear the whole story. It's not just any Sure. It's not just any timing. It's not whenever you feel like it or when you see the corn plant. This has got to be part of a strategy. The strategy is to increase bushels by figuring out a way to get to increase the kernel weight so it takes less kernels to make a 56 pound bushel. You're selling weight, you're getting paid by the weight. A heavier kernel means less kernels. Okay. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, then how do we to get that kernels to fill? We need a longer grain fill period. Heat mm-hmm. is the big enemy of long grain fill period. Mm-hmm. So how do we mitigate heat without cloudy weather or breaking the weather? So But it's a package, and that's when growers go off the rails. Right. Anyway, so uh, you know that's that's it's it's an important component of grain weight, kernel weight, Mm -hmm. which is one of the four components of corn yield. That's why I'm sure that's why you thought about including this your list.
0: Yep. Yeah, because the 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 yield change from going from really heavy kernels to really light kernels is staggering
1: it's really staggering it's and you all from y'all I know you think you know what heat is but I remember Mississippi in 2016 it took 120,000 kernels to make 156 pound bushel that's how light the corn was that's how hot it was I don't think for like a 14 or 16 day period I don't think the night temperatures ever got below 80 let alone get below 70 it wow, was brutal. It was really dramatic. And it, it well that's right. That's how I noticed it. I said, well, <laughs> you can't have a full appreciation for what this does until you live through it, right? Right. And I was living through it. I'm going, Well, this is different. Uncomfortable. <laughs> this is un this is really uncomfortable. This has got to be impacting. This is not oh, are we at seventy degrees or sixty five degrees at night? This is eighty and eighty five degrees at at midnight. Can't breathe. Wow. Very dramatic. Anyway, it got my attention. So that's how. That's that's that was seven years ago, eight years ago. Now, a lesson I never forgot. Look.
0: That's crazy. That's crazy. That's uh, okay, so we'll wrap up. All right, I'm going to recap real fast. Top five. Um, top five practices for corn production: um, uniform emergence and proper emergence depth. Um, both are extremely important. I lumped them into one. Balance plant nutrition, feed the soil and the plant microbes, hybrid selection, pay attention to your hybrid selection. What are the weaknesses? Are you spraying herbicides that are that are fine on that hybrid, or are you spraying a herbicide that they don't recommend spraying? Stay away from that, and then have a plan for mitigating stress during summer drought. Um Obviously, there's more that goes into corn production than those five things. Like I said, those are just things that I wanted to bring to the forefront of the conversation to consider because I think they're absolutely critical and they're things that I don't hear being talked about a lot. Um, So thank you guys for tuning in. Thanks, Paul, for joining us. And uh, we'll have Paul back on the next episode where we're going to cover the top five practices for soybean production uh similar there's a couple differences some similarities um so thank y'all for tuning in and I hope you guys join us on the next one. Thank you.